want to say, I don't say it often enough, how much I appreciate the ministry of music. Phil does a fantastic job, and I know he doesn't like me bragging on him, but Phil does a fantastic job of, of choosing music that fits the Word of God and what is being preached from the pulpit. And I'm, I don't say it often enough how much I appreciate his ministry that way, and Emily as well, as she's come along and, and helped bring depth to the, to the music ministry. We're praying for the music ministry that God would, would continue to expand it and continue to um, bless it. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Good morning, Ricky. Morning, morning to Grace Bible Church. Last week I told you that I'm always thankful to join with the saints in worship of our Lord Jesus in spirit and truth. As most of you know, if you don't know by now, this week has been especially trying for my family. Uh, therefore, the gathering of the saints is, or takes on a special significance for us. Angie and I both have been dealing with some health issues. She's been having some headaches that are pretty debilitating, and I've had a week of migraines, which ultimately landed me in an overnight stay at the hospital. But that's okay. By God's grace, we are here. And I certainly have felt the prayers of the saints this week. I felt that I've just known I've, in my heart that you guys have been truly praying for, for us. And I'm thankful to be here and preaching this morning Praise the Lord. On Thursday night, I told a couple of you this morning, on Thursday night, I truly didn't think I was going to make it. So to be here standing right now before you preaching is just a wonderful gift. Our situation is a reminder that we should praise Him for being a part of the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. We should worship Him with the entirety of our lives. And I, I would argue that this is the way, as an in this way that is, that we are filled with the Spirit. And I think we're going to prove that today, or try to prove that today, from our continuing study in Ephesians chapter 5. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into what Paul means by being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. So I will pray, and then we'll get started. Our gracious Lord, I'm truly thankful to be here today. Truly thankful for every saint here today. I pray that you would... Just bless us, that you would, your Holy Spirit would fill us such that we would be able to understand, such that I could have great clarity of mind, so that I may preach the word in a way that glorifies you. May I decrease as you increase. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in May 1988, <clears throat> a black Toyota pickup truck driving the wrong way on I-71 struck head-on with a church activity bus outside of Carrollton, Kentucky. Neither the drunk driver of the pickup truck, Larry Wayne Mahoney, nor any of the 66 bus passengers were seriously hurt by the impact itself. The crash, however, ruptured the gas tank on the bus and caused a fire which gutted the entire bus in minutes. The impact rendered the front, of the front door of the bus useless, 
and it didn't have an, a back escape at the time. Therefore, many of the passengers in the bus were unable to escape the engulfing flames. When the smoke had cleared, 27 people died on that bus, while 34 more suffered severe injuries. Mahoney, who had a previous DUI conviction, was found to have a blood alcohol content of more than twice the Kentucky limit. He was sentenced to only 16 years in jail. While it was Mahoney's drunkenness behind the wheel that triggered the, the accident, the high fatality rate in the accident was also blamed on the gas tank and the lack of emergency exits, so that mitigated Mahoney's sentence, of which he only served 10 years and 11 months in prison for his crime of driving while drunk. In the words of Thomas Fuller, wine hath drowned more men than the sea. Even though Mahoney only served just five, 11 years, he says that this incident literally ruined his life. Brothers and sisters, drunkenness has ruined many lives because in the words of St. Augustine, drunkenness is a flattering devil, a sweet poison, a pleasant sin. Whosoever has it has not himself, end quote. Now, you may be asking why I'm telling this story about drunkenness since we studied the Bible's command against drunkenness last week. Well, after the sermon last week, I felt a little une uneasy. I sensed that I hadn't said enough about drunkenness and the destruction that it brings, but I also sensed and felt that we needed to consider a couple more biblical references to drunkenness as it pertains to false spirituality. That's important, as it pertains to false spirituality. On the flip side, I don't think I said enough about what God intends for His church in our culture. The story about a man who killed 27 people drinking and driving is just one indication of the excess in America. You see, here in America, we eat too much and we drink too much. William Penn, one of the earlier early settlers of this land said this, All excess is ill, but drunkenness is the worst sort. It spoils the health, it dismounts the mind, and it unmans men. It reveals secrets, is quarrelsome, impotent, dangerous, and bad. By and large in America, we have become a drunken and gluttonous people. Lest we forget that gluttony is a sin as well, right? Amen? Gluttony is a sin as well. So as a church, how are we to respond to these things? Well, I think the answer may surprise you. Now, last week we established that the Bible clearly teaches drunkenness to be sinful. This is especially applicable in the U.S. because of the destructiveness of misusing alcohol. Yet we also determine from Scripture that drinking alcohol in and of itself is not sinful. It is sinful when we twist God's purpose for these things, whether it be alcohol or whether it be food. And when we eat and drink to excess, we are twisting God's good gifts. Now, we should recognize that drinking, though, is looked at differently depending on your culture. Some of you are from other cultures, or cultures other than the United States. And this is one thing that I sort of missed last week. In those places, in the places that maybe some of you are from, drinking alcohol, especially wine, may be a part of the social scene. 
even in the church. Last week, one of our saints told me after the sermon that they grew up around fine wine and cheeses. They, these were consumed in a social setting. And for the most part, my understanding is their use of alcohol is not excessive. From this person's point of view, wine and food are understood to be gifts as God, from God. And we saw this principle last week in Psalm 104, verse 15. The earth brings forth bread and wine, which sustains man and makes his heart glad. Now, you may recall, though, after the sermon, I led us through communion, and I used Luke 22 as the, next, or as the text for our communion time. I did this purposely, actually, because of verses 16 and 18. In those two verses, in Luke 22, 16 and 18, Jesus told his disciples that he would not eat the Passover or drink the fruit of the vine from that point until the kingdom of God comes. Now, when he says drinking the fruit of the vine, he's referring to drinking the wine which was served during Passover meal. This is, this is significant to our discussion the, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, I would argue that the covenant, the new covenant that he's speaking of, will be fully re realized and celebrated in the millennial kingdom. During that time, Christ will reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Now, in Isaiah 25, 6, Isaiah said, prophesied of this time, he says this, this is Isaiah 25, 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. Now, the mountain he's talking about is, is the Mount, Mount Zion. He's talking about Jerusalem. So the, I take it to be that the Lord Jesus, who will reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem, he will then prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on, the, on that mountain. And he says this in 25, 6. A banquet of aged wine choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Now, I would argue, and I am arguing, that this coming celebration, that during this coming celebration, Jesus will drink of the vine, which he promised that he would do. In the millennial kingdom, there will be eating and drinking and celebration. This will be a time of righteousness as we celebrate the victory and reign of Christ, as we celebrate the coming of our Lord, and the fact that He's reigning bodily here with us. Now, make sure you understand, I don't want to reduce this glorious future day to, a, to merely eating and drinking. This time will be much more about being in the presence of our glorious King than about the abundance that He brings. In other words, the celebration will be all about Him and what He has accomplished. But we can't miss that there will be a great banquet of things which are good. Now, I should point out, though, that Satan will always try to counterfeit the truth. And that's the issue here, is it not? I'm convinced that this is the reason that pagan festivals have similar elements. They always involve music and food and drinking to the point of drunkenness. In Galatians 5.21, Paul lists, the Apostle Paul lists drunkenness and carousing as deeds of the flesh. Now, now the, <coughs> the term translated carousing has the idea of ex excess. The word has its origins. This is amazing to me. The word actually has its origins in the description of the festal procession in honor of Dionysus, the god of wine, which we discussed last week. 
If you want a picture, word picture, think of the modern Mardi, Mardi Gras in New Orleans. But after the procession, there was a banquet where excessive feasting occurred accompanied by sexual perversion and drinking. So what's happening is, is that this, I believe what's happening is, is that Satan is counterfeiting what is going to happen in the millennial kingdom with our Lord Jesus Christ, which is going to be righteous, but what Satan wants is something completely twisted and unrighteous. Now you might see the parallels, right? This parallels to Christ's victory procession. Right? As, he's, as he's approaching the mountain, we see that in Psalm 68, this victory procession of the one true king and the banquet celebration we saw in Isaiah 25. As Christians, then, we must not jo- join in the demonic counterfeit. We must be expectantly looking forward to the real thing, the real thing that is, is good and righteous. We must recognize that we're already part of Christ's victory procession, which will culminate in that great banquet at the end of the days. At the end of days. We also need to realize that we're expectantly right now looking for the return of our King. And this should be a time of limiting ourselves as we, as we await His return. Now let me show you another connection to the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul begins a discussion regarding, the com- regarding communion at the church in Corinth. You can turn there if you'd like. We'll be there for a few minutes. As we read through this, through this, as we read through this, keep in mind that this idea of Satan making a mockery of good things. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, he says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that, you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. And then he says this in verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So what Paul is saying is, He's telling the Corinthians is that he has heard that there are divisions and factions in the church. And these divisions are affecting the church in a variety of ways. And it's especially evident when they gather together for the love feast and the communion. Now, just to make sure we all understand, the early church had love feasts, which were a time of eating and drinking together in fellowship. These feasts were usually closed with the observance of the Lord's table. The, the church at Corinth was struggling with worldliness and carnality. Now look at verse 21. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one says this, For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another one's drunk. You see, the, the Corinthians had turned these sacred meals into a gluttonous, drunken revelry. In other words, they were treating these feasts the same as the pagan festivals which they were accustomed to as unbelievers. It seems that the wealthy believers had brought enough food and drink for themselves, but they refused to share with those who had need. And some of these folks were eating and drinking to excess, while others went without. As such, they were making a mockery of the Lord's table. And because of these unbelieving actions, Paul says that they were really not observing the Lord's table. It was completely different, something completely different. 
is more pagan than it is Christian. Communion, as we know, as we've talked about many times, is a time, a somber time of remembrance. But what they were doing was a sham. Shockingly, they had allowed excess, especially excessive drinking, to wreck these gatherings. In other words, they let Satan run rampant in their feast. They let Satan run rampant in their feast. Jude also spoke of this problem in Jude 1, or Jude 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. You see, these men were making a mockery of the feast, of their love feast. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, Drunkenness is the devil's back door to hell, and everything that is hellish. For, that, for, that, for he that once gives away his brains to drink is ready to be caught by Satan for anything. Now, drunkenness is, church, the back door to hell for each individual. But it's also a pathway. Eating and drinking to excess, excess is also a pathway to, the, to Satan's destroying the church. That's what we see at the church of Corinth. Again, we see that Satan will always try to counterfeit and make a mockery of the things that God says are good. You see, eating and drinking are good things. Paul, or God gave food and drink as good gifts. And James says in James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. But when we abuse these gifts, whether it be food or drink, when we abuse these gifts in an ungodly way, this is not from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Now let me bring this to a bit of a crescendo, if you will. You might say that the answer to these problems is simply to use alcohol and food as they are intended. You might, that might be what your response is. And I think there's some truth to this, right? We need to, we need to use alcohol. If we, if we drink alcohol, we need to use alcohol in the right way. We need to use food in the right way. But the truth is, there's too many variables at play, such as how to deal with weaker brothers regarding alcohol and food, right? Yet Paul gives a profound answer to this problem. Do you know what he says is the answer? We'll turn back to Ephesians 5. He says, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the answer. It's interesting to me that Christians can divide over whether to drink alcohol or not, right? We, that's a big division in the church. We're always talking about stuff like that. And we even talk about food and what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat. But the truth is, is that we shouldn't be dividing over these things because I don't believe the question of whether we can drink alcohol is asking even the right question. We ask whether a Christian can drink, but we should be asking whether they're being filled with the Spirit. That's the answer. Ultimately, it doesn't matter where you land on the question of alcohol because it's the wrong question. You know what does matter? It's like Paul says, whether you are filled with the Spirit. 
See, being filled with the Spirit makes the question of alcohol a moot point. This is absolutely critical for us to understand. We, ha- we must understand this. So let's dive into this statement to, better, to try to better appreciate it. Now let me read the passage in, in Ephesians 5 to set the stage for this. This is Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, wastefulness. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In verse 15, Paul encourages the Ephesian church to walk in wisdom, not as unwise, but as wise. I just want to remind you, this is the last of the five walk statements in, uh, of Ephesians 4 through 6. This verse forms, I would argue, that verse 15 forms the proposition of the entire section, which stretches from 5.15 to 6.9. In this portion of the letter, we find Paul's instructions for walking in wisdom. Therefore, Paul gives four instructions for walking wisely during these evil days. A few weeks ago, we saw in 5.16 that you must redeem your weeks closely. Put simply, we need to redeem our time. We must not waste valuable time on those things which do not contribute to the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's why I would say that one of the reasons I would say that asking about alcohol and whether or not the Christian should drink is the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The question is, whatever we're doing, is it contributing to the advancement of the kingdom? Your job, your family time, even your hobby should all consider the kingdom of God. You see, these are all good things, but we must always keep them in proper balance. Secondly, in 5.17, we saw that we must, you must recognize Yahweh's will conscientiously. In this verse, Paul commands the church to stop being foolish and understand the will of the Lord. In other words, we must have a right understanding of God's will in the church and in the world. And that insight will guide us and keep us from walking in foolishness like the world. Now this brings us to verses 18-20 through 20 and Paul's third instruction for walking wisely during these evil days. We started looking at this point last week. You must, third, third instruction, you must realize the Spirit's work consistently. Look at your text in verse 18. Again, we, he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I said last week that this verse is, in, is packed with truth. and It has an incredible impact on how we are to live. But as I said again last week, this, must, this may be one of the more misunderstood verses in the New Testament. So we're going to take our time and continue to unpack it as we move forward in the text. And for the rest of this time, this morning, we're going to look at the second part of verse 18. Paul starts this phrase with the conjunction, but. This is an adversative. You might even say a strong adversative. He is saying, don't be drunk, a negative command. But, but, so uh, instead of that, be filled with the Spirit, which is a, a positive command. 
And this is the reason I've said that the, the answer to the question of whether to drink or not is not the right question. The right question is whether you are being filled with the Spirit. Now, let's consider what this phrase means. You have to stick with me here. A little bit of, a, a little bit of an academic exercise. So let's start by defining the terms and studying Paul's grammar. The, the verb, or the verb be filled, the, the word translated be filled, could mean so, to fill something up. The word could be used to filling something up to the rim or to the brim. It could be also used of wind fill, filling the sail on a boat. To be filled by the Spirit, then, is to be moved along as Christians by God Himself. This is the imagery from 2 Peter 1.21, where Peter says that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We're talking about Scripture here. But it says that they were moved along as the wind blows and, and fills the cell and pushes them along and writing Scripture the same way the Christian is moved along in his life, in his or her life, as they, as they live before God. Now, the second way this word could be used has the idea of permeation, as salt would permeate meat in order to flavor or preserve it. The Lord wants us to be permeated with the Holy Spirit to such an extent that, that all that we do and say or even think is completely influenced by His presence. The third way, again we're talking about this word to be filled, or the verb be filled. The third way this word could be used speaks of total control. This is related to the second example. It can be said, it can be said that you're filled with sadness or filled with anger or filled with fear. And when we're filled with these emotions, we're being totally controlled by them, are we not? Have you ever been around an angry man? I've been angry myself at times. My family will tell you. I'm not proud of that. But when you're angry, you're controlled by the anger. When we're filled by these emotions, we're being controlled by them. We could say the same thing, though, about faith. A person can be filled with faith. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen was a man filled with faith. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter asked Ananias why Satan had filled his heart. So we see that Satan can fill a person's heart. In the words of John MacArthur, to be filled in this sense is to be totally dominated and controlled. And it is the most important sense for believers. Now we could use the following illustration to describe the Christian who is filled with the Spirit. And you computer nerds will, will appreciate this. A computer is nothing more than a glorified paperweight, unless it's programmed by a human, is it not? No computer can act on its own without first being guided by the programmer. You can't expect the computer to be useful until it is made useful. When I was a kid, I desperately wanted a computer. It was, they were a new thing at the time. I, my, when my parents asked me why, what I wanted to do with it, I said, I don't really know. I, I don't know that anybody really knew at the time, <laughs> except maybe Steve, uh, Jobs or... Uh, or Bill Gates, and they, they made a lot of money off of it. But it was at that point they said, well, we don't want to spend, you know, four or five paychecks on something that'll sit in the corner unused. I think that was probably wise of them. You see, 
they fully realize that a computer is useless unless someone makes it do something. In the same way, the Christian can't be useful without being guided by the Holy Spirit. We can't be guided by the Holy Spirit unless we are filled by Him. Now, this word with, the word with, the word translated with, is simple but profound. This word is used throughout the Greek text and has three possible translations. It has been translated here with the word with, or the preposition with, in the NASB and in the ESV, and actually in the New Legacy Standard Bible, which I recommend, they all use the word with, or translate this word with. The idea then is that we are filled with the Spirit. He is the content of the filling. In this case, again, he's the the content of of the filling, but we could translate this word in. We could be filled in the Spirit, but this translation is not widely accepted but there is one other possibility the preposition has also been rendered by the spirit so he's the he's the instrument of the filling he's not the content but he's the instrument of the filling this is in the the new english translation and in the holman christian standard bible admittedly it's a tough call between with and by i i don't I, i can pretty much say i don't think it's in so I think it's either with or by. And I, and I can tell you that it's pretty close. But I lean toward with being the correct translation. The, the, the word translated spirit could mean our human spirit. Or it could mean the Holy Spirit. But I firmly land that it is the Holy Spirit that is in view here. Because every time that Paul brings up the Spirit in Ephesians... He, has, he uses or is speaking of the Holy Spirit, so I don't see why that would be different here. Now, speaking of the grammar, I told you this is going to be a little technical, but that's okay. You guys can handle it. I should say the verb here is a present passive imperative. Now, let me break that down for you. The present tense lets us know that this is something that we are continually to do as Christians. In other words, We can't depend upon something that has happened to us in the past or something that might happen to us in the future. We must, in this sense, live in the here and now. This is an ongoing filling and is to be pursued at the present time and into the future. Just yesterday, my wife and I had some discussions regarding our marriage relationship. She wants me to be the man she needs right now. Amen? I can't look in the past and say, well, I was a good husband at, the, at this point in the past, and that's good enough, right? I can't look at the past and say, it's good enough that at one point in the past, I was a good husband. And I certainly can't look in the future and say, well, I will work to be a good husband to you at some point in the future. No, I, it doesn't work that way. She needs me, she wants me to be a good husband to her today and every day. And I need to work to be a a good husband every day. The strength and the weakness of our marriage has everything to do with our willingness to love and be devoted to one another in the present. Well, in Ephesians 5.18, we are to be continually filled in the here and now. This is a command every day that we are to be filled. Now, here's what's interesting. 
it's a passive instead of an active. It, the passive denotes that the filling is something that happens to us. So we're commanded that something happened to us. Does that, that seems odd, right? In other words, we are, we are to allow the Holy Spirit to fill us. And as such, then if we, if we can allow Him to fill us, then we can resist that filling. Can we not? Now, putting all this together, you could translate this verb as be being kept filled. That, that takes the, that's the passive sense, and that's the present sense that's there. And beloved, we can't carry out God's will for our lives unless we are being kept filled with the Spirit. That's the point. If we don't obey this command, then we are powerless to obey any other commands of God. That is, unless we work to obey in the flesh, but that is destined to fail, is it not? Now, this is an incredibly difficult concept in, in one sense to understand. So therefore, therefore, sometimes it's easier to define what something is by pointing out what it is not. So let me give you a few things that, it's, that it, he's not saying. First, being filled with the Spirit is not a spectacular, hard-to-obtain experience enjoyed by a few super-Christians. This is not a second blessing that needs to be sought after. This is the normal response of the obedient Christian to the Holy Spirit. It's how we live. As Christians, we live uh, wanting to be filled with the Spirit. Second, at the same time, this is not something that can be obtained by just going through the motions. You can't obtain this by just going through the motions. As I said earlier, being filled by the Spirit is not something we can achieve in the flesh by our own power. This is a supernatural work of the Spirit which must not be resisted. You know, resisting the filling and control of the Spirit is, is disobedience and rebellion. Third, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not the same as being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And why this is, this is important, because every believer is indwelled at the moment, by the Holy Spirit, at the moment of salvation. Paul says this in Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's very clear. If you don't have the Spirit dwelling within you, then you don't have Christ. You don't belong to him. So therefore, if you are a Christian, you have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. If we don't have the Spirit of God, then we don't have Christ. Fourth, and similarly, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not the same as being sealed and secured by Him. In Ephesians 1.13, Paul told the church that after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. So after hearing and believing the gospel, every Christian is sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. This happens to every believer. The sealing is not something that we have to seek after. 
we hear the gospel and we believe the gospel, and He seals us with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this sealing, the sealing is given as, the Holy Spirit is given as, verse 14, this is Ephesians 1.14, as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So if you're a believer, then you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a pledge of the full future redemption by God. And He does this to His glory. It's not the same as being filled with the Spirit. Fifth, fifth, being filled with the Spirit is not the same as being baptized by the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one Spirit. Notice the word all. He says it three times, right? Or, or twice. He says, we are all baptized. Whether Jews or Greeks or free, we are all made to drink of one Spirit. By one Spirit, we are all baptized. If you are in Christ, if you are in His church, you have been baptized in the Spirit. You may have been made to, all to drink of one Spirit. So the baptism of the, of the Holy Spirit is a spiritual reality that occurs in every person who believes in Christ. And it happens the moment you become a Christian. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit and you are baptized by the Spirit into one body. It's for every, every believer. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. There are no exceptions. No exceptions. If you're a believer, that is. This is not an, an experience that is un, unique to a few. So now that we've looked at the definitions and some grammar and established what it is not, let's look at a few verses to see if we can understand what it actually means to be filled with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 6, the church wanted men to free the apostles for the ministry of the word and prayer. Stephen was one of those, one of the men chosen. He was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, according to six, Acts 6, 5. The word translated full there is the same root word as Ephesians 5, 18. And in 6, 5, we see the connection between the fullness of faith this is important. We saw it. We, we, we sung the song by faith, right? We see the connection between the fullness of faith and the fullness of the Spirit. Stephen was a man so filled and so controlled by the Spirit that in Acts 7, he stood before the high priest. And after he preached, after he preached and defended himself, they began to stone him. And as he was being stoned to death, the text says he was full of, of the Holy Spirit. As he was dying, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was so controlled by the Spirit that he not only willingly died for Christ, he did so joyfully. And as he was dying, he was given a vision of the glory of God. That's pretty cool. I'd say anyway. Being Filled with the Spirit detaches us from all our personal desires. It detaches us, as we saw with, with Stephen, it detaches us from the world and the world's grip on us. It detaches, detaches us from all the fear of men. Men, he stood there full of the Holy Spirit, defending himself, preaching, and he did it with joy. 
our will becomes His will as, he, as we fully give ourselves over to Him. In Acts 4.8, Peter, Peter pow- powerfully preached the gospel after he was filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter had received the Spirit at Pentecost, did he not? So this was something different than receiving the Holy Spirit. He was so fully controlled by the Spirit that he powerfully claimed, proclaimed that there's no salvation, there's salvation in no one else, no one other than Jesus Christ, the, Ma- the Nazarene. Powerfully proclaimed that message. There are several other instances where men were described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 9, 17, Ananias told Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to me on or appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me that, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 11, 22-24, Barnabas was sent to Antioch because he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Again, we see this connection between faith and being filled with the Spirit. In Acts 13, 9, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit when he confronted the deceitful magician. Magician. Musician. <laughs> magician. That's it. In Acts 13, 52, the disciples were described as being continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And it is for that reason, we, we can't miss this, It is for that reason that these men and women upset the world and set in motion the church, which will endure until the Lord Jesus returns. It's because they were men and women who were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, having studied the data this morning, I think we can land on a definition for being filled with the Spirit. And I can't do better than the words of John MacArthur. He says, to be filled with the Spirit involves confession of sin, surrender of will, intellect, body, time, talent, possessions, and desires. I might add that John Piper says that faith is the pathway to being filled with the Spirit. Faith is the pathway. We attain this filling of the Spirit through faith. Piper offers the examples of Stephen, who was a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, in Acts 6-5, and Barnabas, who was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, in Acts 11-24. And John Piper goes on to say, the two go together. If a person is filled with faith, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's profound, isn't it? It's profound. I should point out that being Spirit-filled is not some elusive thing that only super-Christians can have. It saddens me when, when Christians run around thinking they need access to something more than they already have. In the words of Tozer, he says, The Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for His people. I should also point out, it's not something we can do by the works of the flesh. Being filled with the Spirit is purely a work of the Spirit. We are commanded to yield to His filling. In the words of John Piper, he says, We are commanded to be full. Yet we are not the filler. The Spirit is. The answer to this predicament in the New Testament is that God has ordained to move into our lives with fullness through faith. So again, we see that connection to faith. Now you may be saying, I see what you're saying, but I seem to always fall short. I can't say that I've ever been filled with the Spirit. 
Well, the passages we read earlier should be encouraging. In the cases of Peter and Paul, the language seems to indicate that they were filled with the Spirit just prior to the task at hand. Again, in the words of John Piper, nobody stays full of the Spirit all the time. No one is always totally joyful and submissive to God and empowered for service. But this should still be our aim, our goal, and our great longing, end quote. Brethren, if you're not living a Spirit-filled life, let me give you a few thoughts as we close. First, first, so this is a few thoughts so that you might live a Spirit-filled life. First, by faith, seek the Lord in His Word. I will venture to say that no one has ever been filled with the Holy Spirit without first being filled with His Word. But I will also say that when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will want nothing more than to seek Him in His Word. That makes sense. In Colossians 3, we find the parallel passage to Ephesians 5, 18-21. There, Paul says, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Second, second, if you want to live a Spirit-filled life by faith, Confess your sins. In 1 John 1, 9, we saw this last week during communion. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the confession of sin opens us up to the work of God within us. Uh, relinquishing the power of that sin over our lives through the power of Jesus. And as we saw in earlier examples of Stephen, Peter, Barnabas, and Paul, the work of God can be most clearly seen when we're filled with the Spirit. And confession of sin allows for that filling. Third, third way, if you seek or want to be filled with the Spirit, third way, by faith seek the Lord in prayer. Ask Him. Ask Him to fill you with the Holy Spirit. This is not some ecstatic occurrence. The evidence of this filling is not speaking in tongues or some euphoric event such as holy laughter as some suppose. It's available for all of us. It's available for all of us to be filled with the Spirit of God. Follow the prayer of Andrew Murray. O God, for thy sake, for thy church's sake. O oh God, for the sake of the world, help me. I must be filled with the Holy Ghost. What a wonderful prayer. What a wonderful prayer that I hope each and every one of you, as you walk out of here today, will consider praying to God, asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You must also recognize that these prayers go both ways. Just like seeking Him in His Word and the Holy Spirit filling you and making you want to seek Him even more. If you seek Him in prayer and are filled with the Spirit, that means you'll pray even more. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, for the faithful, Spirit-filled Christian, every place becomes a place of prayer. End quote. Fourth, by faith fully surrender to Christ and His Spirit. Christian, have you fully surrendered everything to Christ? Your will, your intellect, your body, your time, talent, your resources? 
If not, you can't be filled with the Spirit. I would just beg you, consider these things. Consider the, the will of God. Consider that He wants you to walk according to His Spirit. Unbelievers. Unbelievers. I ask the same. Have you taken up your cross to follow Christ? In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when, a, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. He bids him to come and die. Take up your cross and follow him. It is in him that you will find rest for your weary souls. It's in him it's in Him you'll find salvation. For there's no other name other than Jesus Christ the Nazarene in which man may be saved. Come to Him. Come to Him. Oh, believer, we're missing out so much on so much if we are not filled with the Spirit. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this opportunity to preach this morning. I pray that that we would live spirit-filled lives. Lives full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. It is by this way that this church can have any impact. It's by this way that our fathers and, and husbands can lead their families. It's in this way that our mothers and wives can love their husbands. It's in this way that our children can obey. It's in this way that we can take the gospel as a church to the nations by being full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray you fill us up to the brim. I pray that you're, the Holy Spirit would be the wind that carries us along. Father, I pray for those who are unbelieving here today. Lord, I know this makes no sense. I pray that you would wake them from the dead. I pray that you would raise them up and seat them with you in the heavenly places so that they may live triumphant lives and live with you in eternity. Father, I pray that they would understand that your wrath is upon them outside of turning to you, outside of humbly coming to you to find rest for their weary souls. In Christ's name, amen.